Good mornings, I'm Chris Oaks, and coming up today, a proposed rule change by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services could finally make it easier for family members to step in as foster parents for kids in need, a measure many believe is long overdue. Also this morning, Section 230 debated at the Supreme Court. A closer look at the cases some say could change the internet as we know it today. But would it be a change for the better? And we have details on the 2023 Community Read event from the Findlay-Hencock County Public Library and this year's selection, The Invisible Husband of Frick Island. This is the Good Mornings Podcast Edition for Wednesday, February 22nd, 2023. This may be the biggest news of the day, definitely among the first things that you will need to know this morning. You know how uh, traditional soft drinks, uh, sales of traditional soft drinks have been declining in recent years. This may be just the news that the soft drink giants like Coca-Cola and Pepsi need to boost their sales. It says... The country's most popular sodas might refresh certain parts of the body that other drinks can't reach. (laughs) According to a new study, this is published in the Daily Mail, men who drink Coca-Cola or Pepsi had higher testosterone levels and larger genitals than their peers who did not. That's right. Soft, traditional soft drinks uh, could uh, <clears throat> improve your endowment. Let's put it that way. <laughs> uh, the unusual finding appears to contradict previous studies that have shown sugary drinks and processed foods make men less fertile. Well, now it doesn't say that they're more fertile, just that they're uh, larger. <laughs> Uh, experts are not suggesting that men should rush out and drink lots of uh, Coke and Pepsi. Uh, previous studies have linked sugary sodas to a host of health problems, including obesity, diabetes, heart disease, high blood pressure, and tooth decay. To, uh, tooth decay. But where it really counts, that <laughs> may be just the news that I can just see this in a uh, Coca-Cola or Pepsi ad in the future. You know, I can... You know that in a boardroom somewhere, uh, they're saying, how can we spin this? How can we advertise this? <laughs> Get away with it. Uh, let's see. That kind of reminds me. You remember the story uh, yesterday that we had uh, the uh, oldest known adult toy or the oldest adult toy in world history uh, was uh, uncovered? You remember that story that we had yesterday? How about this? Uh, archaeologists in China have turned up the remains of what might be the world's oldest known flush toilet. Uh, Chinese state media reported last week that a research team found broken parts of a 24-year-old, a 2,400-year-old toilet, along with a bent flush pipe. Apparently, the discovery was made last summer. How are we just now hearing about this today? The ancient sanitation device discovered among the ruins of a palace at an archaeological site in central China. According to China Daily, this is a state-owned news agency. Aren't they all state-owned news agencies? Anyway, 
the researchers believe the toilet was located inside the palace with a pipe leading to an outside pit. Servants likely would have poured water into the toilet bowl every time it was used. So there you go. The remains <laughs> of what may be the world's oldest known flush toilet from some 2,400 years ago. Man, that's... Every day there is uh, something amazing. Something amazing to talk about. Some of the other uh, most interesting and buzzworthy stories of the day, among the first things that you need to know, Mardi Gras yesterday. Today is Ash Wednesday, of course, uh, beginning of the Lenten season. Yesterday was Mardi Gras, uh, celebrating Fat Tuesday and all of that. Nowhere is there a bigger celebration of Mardi Gras than in New Orleans. And if you've ever been to New Orleans, you know how crazy it can get. Um, it seems even the mayor of the city can get wrapped up in all of the revelry and end up be behaving poorly. That's the thing. With Mardi Gras, people tend to behave poorly, and you know that going in. I mean, if you go to New Orleans to celebrate Nord Mardi Gras, you know that it's going to be uh, just a, a tremendous display of bad behavior. Well, apparently the mayor of New Orleans is now in a little bit of hot water for making obscene gestures to a passing carnival float <laughs> during Mardi Gras. Latoya Cantrell can be seen on video flipping the bird to a passing float and yelling obscenities. And of course, this all happened in front of children. Which, first of all, kind of makes me wonder, why would you take kids to a, a Mardi Gras celebration? These are not kid-friendly, most of them. There are some kid-friendly parades uh, in New Orleans, because they have many parades. Some of them are kid-friendly. Most of them are not. But uh, nonetheless, the the mayor uh, flipping the bird and uh, yelling obscenities, and it all happened in front of children. It is not known what prompted the incident, although her office released a statement saying it was in satire and jest. In the spirit of Mardi Gras. That may not save her, however. Organizers have, have uh, put together a recall campaign now, and they believe that they either have or will have enough signatures to trigger a recall election. I don't know. I mean, definitely uh, a no-no, and I'm sure the mayor is embarrassed, and it's not something the mayor should have done, but a recall election over that? I mean, come on. It's Mardi Gras in New Orleans. You got to expect some kind of crazy stuff like that. Uh, let's see. So we'll see if that goes anywhere. But uh, certainly a buzzworthy story. Uh, there's video of all of this, and it's gone viral online. So if you want to check it out, decide for yourself how bad of a violation that is public trust. Um, by the way, speaking of uh, traveling, we're talking about traveling to New Orleans. I've never been to New Orleans for Mardi Gras. I've been to New Orleans, but not for for Mardi Gras. I don't know. Um, it, it that's sort of like New Year's Eve in Times Square. It's one. It's it's something that I would put on my bucket list. I want to want to do it once, but once is probably enough. <laughs> you know, it's probably not something you want to do every year. But anyway, speaking of travel, um, the next time you travel. Here is a unique idea for beating the luggage fees that many airlines charge. A, uh, an Ohio woman by the name of Sarah Rachel uh, posted this on TikTok. And I'm not sure where in Ohio she's from. Just says she's from Ohio. I think we have all 
kind of thought about this, but she actually did it. She mailed her clothes to Disney World. (laughs) In order to avoid the checked bag fees for Spirit Airlines, she shipped her luggage to Disney World instead of checking it with the airline and saved money in the process. Her video claims that mailing her goods cost $28 each way with FedEx. Spirit would have charged her $62 each way. Now, I don't know, $28 each way, that seems, that seems low. Wouldn't it, I mean, if you were sending, if you were shipping luggage through FedEx, wouldn't that be more than $28? That's what she claims. It's $28 each way. I would think it would be more expensive. Still might be cheaper than $62 each way. Uh, some of the commenters on her TikTok video about this loved the idea. Others were more cautious. Um, <laughs> one said, what happens if FedEx loses your package or it gets delayed? If small savings like luggage costs mean I can go to Disney World six times a year instead of three, that's smart spending, she replied. But if you're going six times a year to Disney World, uh, then luggage fees are the least of your expenses. You know what I mean? I mean, you know how much it costs? It's like the average the average uh, cost now for a family of four to go to Disney World is like five grand. And if you're quibbling over a $62, well, it's a difference of like 40 bucks, less than 40 bucks between, so I'm not sure how she figures that saving 30, between 30 and $40 per bag per trip is going to pay for double the number of trips to Disney World. I'm a bit skeptical here, but uh, in any event, um, some people like it. Some people don't. I don't. I've I've thought of that hack, but I've never tried it. I don't know. I would. I would worry. Would it show up at the wrong place? I mean, you send it to Disney World. What if it shows up at the wrong resort, or they deliver it to the business office at Disney World, and then you got to track it down? And that. I'm I'm just thinking that would might be more hassle than it's worth. But think of that what you will. Oh, and uh, one other note. We're talking about the first things you need to know this morning. The most important stories of the day. This has to be right up at the top of the list. McDonald's is rolling out its popular Shamrock Shake. The Shamrock Shake is back for a limited time at Mickey D's. The minty refreshment was released to the public yesterday and is available nationwide while supplies last. They are also offering the Oreo Shamrock McFlurry. So, you get your Shamrock treat fix at McDonald's now. You're welcome, America. There you go. Some of the most interesting and buzzworthy stories to get your Wednesday morning started. WFIN News. I'm Matt Demchek. Your WTOL 11 weather. Rain showers today, a high of 51. More showers tonight, a low of 45. One of the three men arrested in connection with the death of Bluffton police officer Dominic Francis last March agreed to a plea deal with the Hancock County Prosecutor's Office.
Dante Tate pleaded guilty to two felony counts of receiving stolen property while two other counts were dismissed. The 19-year-old was sentenced to two and a half years in prison on the two felony charges. He'll serve that sentence after he completes the two-year sentence he received in Medina County where he was apprehended in a car that he stole. After the stolen car he was a passenger in struck Officer Francis on I-75 in Bluffton. Two other suspects have court dates approaching in Hancock County, including the driver of the car. Get more on the website. A committee in the Ohio House will be holding a hearing about what the state can do to improve rail safety after that toxic train derailment earlier this month. Scheduled to testify is the assistant director of the Ohio Department of Public Safety, as well as a railroad representative who represents the engineers and locomotive unions. Now, what we're told is the meeting will focus on what guardrails, if any, the state can impose to prevent another train derailment involving hazardous materials. ONN's Kevin Landers reporting. Get more on the website. The newly selected superintendent of Finley City Schools released a video message to the community. In the message, Dr. Andy Hatton thanked Trojan Country for this opportunity to serve as the school district's new superintendent. I want to thank Krista Miller for stepping up when the staff and the community needed you most as the interim superintendent. And I cannot wait to start collaborating with this amazing team in Finley City Schools. Hatton comes to Finley from Upper Arlington City Schools, where he's the associate superintendent. Get more on our website. The University of Finley, which has more than 400 international students from 44 countries, celebrated International Mother Language Day. That's a UF student from Taiwan singing a song in Mandarin during the event in which students shared songs, poems, and dances in their native tongue to celebrate linguistic and cultural diversity. Remember, you can always get more news online anytime at WFIN.com. And now our cover story this morning, a proposed rule change by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services could finally make it easier for family members to step in as foster parents for kids in need. It is a measure that many believe is long overdue. And joining us is Randall Galbraith, who is head of the uh, uh, Hancock County uh, Job and Family Services uh, here uh, locally. And, uh, Randall, thanks very much for uh, dropping by. Uh, first of all, we appreciate it. This is a federal, uh, a new federal rule that basically removes some of the uh, certification hurdles that exist for family members who want to step in when a minor child is removed from a home, basically. Yes, uh, like most uh, programs that I administer at Job and Family Services were funded uh, by the federal government primarily, and of course... So you've got to follow their rules. Exactly yeah. right, you have to follow the rules. Uh, this is uh, uh, something that's been on the radar for several years now. Ohio was involved in a lawsuit uh, back in 2017 uh, that... Um, Basically, what the federal court did was said that Ohio and several other states were in, in not interpreting federal statute correctly when it comes to foster parents and kinship placements. And we needed to treat kinship placements like foster families in terms of pay. Like, okay, so uh, in terms of pay. In terms of pay. And okay. so some states, Michigan being a great example, uh, have, have gone the route of making sure that foster parents and, and kinship placements have to go through the same process, yeah. uh, the, the exact same process to get licensed. So if you, Ohio took a slightly different path on that, you, you, you do not have to have quite the same uh, certifications to be a kinship placement as a foster parent. Uh, the, the local agency, me, uh, has the discretion to waive uh, some of those requirements. 
for that. Such as what would be the requirements that you could weigh? Because I mean, you can on the surface you can understand you want to uh, put a child in a better environment, in a good right. environment. At the same time, I know obviously uh, family members should you would think have a preferred uh, you know kind of status. Well, correct. The, the, so the the biggest requirement, I think, the biggest hurdle is that there's an hour. An hours of training requirement. I think it's about 30 hours, 36 yeah. hours of training that a foster parent has to go through that a kinship placement. I, I can waive those requirements, for instance. So that uh, kinship placements, you know, they are, uh, they're not in the business of being foster parents. They, mm-hmm. These are family members that have been asked to step up and step into the place of, of parents. And, you know, they're often working. Uh, they often have their own kids. Uh, so th- those kinds of requirements are quite burdensome and have been a barrier to kinship placement so um what are some of the requirements that a kinship placement would have to or that a a family would have to uh still meet almost all kinship placements will have to go through background checks and and what's called a home study requirement kinship home study uh, where uh my crew will go into to the home make sure the home is physically safe uh, make sure that the people that live in the home are appropriate uh, those kinds of things you really can't get around that kind of requirement and nor nor really should you no. i mean you like we said you want to put them in a safe uh environment um but it it certainly makes sense uh for the benefit of the child to be surrounded by family members people that they know as opposed to complete strangers exactly there's no there's no study that i'm aware of that says that children don't do better with kin than they do in in foster care right uh foster care is like the last best resort uh for children and often those children have no uh, family or very few family that that we can find would it uh would it also be fair to say that i mean it's been a long-standing issue that there aren't enough foster families uh not just here but everywhere would it be fair to say that removing some of those barriers for family members who are willing to take in uh minor children uh for a family member who might find themselves in a situation would certainly relieve the burden on the foster families that you do have. Absolutely. That is a, a, absolutely true. Uh, there are far, far more children in uh, uh, state custody than there are foster placements for those children. The headlines, if you're, anyone's paying attention, will find that uh, one of the big controversies is kids staying in agencies uh, overnight, and in the case of some counties, for days and days and days because we can't find a placement for them. Uh, that has not actually, actually happened much here in Hancock County, certainly nothing long-term. Uh, which we're very grateful for. But it is this is exactly the idea. We're going to alleviate that problem uh, by making sure we put in financial supports and cut the red tape for kinship placement. So uh, the bottom line, like we said, uh, when, I, when I saw this uh, press release from uh, the uh, Health and Human Services uh, Department about this uh, change at the federal level, Again, you think there's positive and negative here. You want to make sure that these uh, placements are still positive environments, but it certainly makes sense to uh, remove some of those uh, burdens on balance. This is a good move? I believe so. I do believe it is. Uh, To give some idea of the numbers that are out there, uh, Hancock County at any one time will have about 100 kids in their custody. And of those, about uh, between 35 and 40 kids will be in a kinship placement. So they're in county custody, but in kinship placement. 
Um, so that's roughly half, a little less than half. But we also have 75 kids usually, about that number, that we have some kind of oversight of who are not in county custody, which means they're in some type of kinship placement. So out of 175 kids that we monitor on any particular day, you know, you know, the vast majority are in a kinship placement. So this uh, change at the federal level, does this kind of bring those guidelines more uh – bring more clarity to those guidelines uh, and, and bring it in line with what the state allows you to do? Yes, and I, th- I think the, the bigger point of these regulations may be to bring finan- financing, the financial piece, into alignment. Uh, it has been uh, something of a problem that our kinship placements could not uh, receive the same kind of financial support that a foster placement does. Is that because uh, these regulations, they didn't meet all of the federal regulations? I, I don't, I would not say that that's the biggest barrier. I would say it was because there, it, it was a way to keep the cost down on the government side, okay? Just to be quite blunt about it. Yeah. Um, the, the federal government's now saying, we, and, and the, the federal courts are now saying, you need to bring these two things into alignment. Mm. So uh, the bottom line is this is good news uh, for the kids, for the foster care uh, system, for uh, job and family services, that kind of thing. Absolutely. I do believe that's true. Yeah. Uh, we've got a link up, by the way, uh, at our webpage for more information about this uh, new directive. From it. And by the way, this is just proposed. This has not, not yet been adopted, but it is something that the president supports, and it seems uh, as though it does have a great deal of support. I think it's in the comment phase now, uh, but you would have to think that this is probably going to be adopted. Yes, it'd be very rare for a federal rule this far along to not go through. Yeah. Uh, again, uh, Randall Gabberth is uh, director of the uh, uh, Hancock County Job and Family Services uh, Office here uh, locally, talking about this uh, update to the HHS rule to make it easier for family members to step in uh, to care for uh, kids with, that are in a foster care situation, at least temporarily. Randall, thanks very much for uh, dropping by, sharing your insight. We Thank you, Chris. It. Thanks for having me. If you've been following this uh, over the past uh, couple of days here, uh, the Supreme Court is hearing a couple of cases this week that some say could change the Internet as we know it. And uh, the question is, of course, uh, would it be a change for the better? We are joined this morning when we talk about uh, Supreme Court cases uh, we go back to Dr. Scott Gerber. He's a professor of uh, law, constitutional law uh, professor at uh, Ohio Northern University's Pettit School Law Associated uh, Scholar at the Brown University uh, Political Theory Project. So at issue uh, here, again, these are two cases. Uh, the one that was argued yesterday specifically dealt with uh, Section 230 of the, what is it, the Telecommunications uh, Act. It basically... Um, protects online uh, platforms from liability for what their users post on those platforms. Is that basically it? Right. It's Section uh, 230 of the um, Communications Decency Act, which okay. was passed in 1996. Right. Yeah, and it grants immunity uh, on the ground to social media uh, platforms on the ground that they're platforms, not publishers or speakers. So, uh, and, and a lot of people say this is those, it's a, it's like 25 words 
uh, that really make it have made it possible for social media and this online free exchange of ideas that we kind of take for granted uh, really allow that to happen. So the implications here uh, could be quite significant. Correct, and it's important to uh, note who the defendant is in this case. It's uh, it's uh, Google who owns YouTube, mm-hmm. and the counter to Google's claim or YouTube's claim for immunity is that they make money off of this stuff, and uh, they have these algorithms that direct viewers of specific YouTube videos to other YouTube videos, and the longer the viewer stays online... Um, the more money uh, YouTube and therefore Google makes through the advertisement. Right. Uh, Now, folks will remember that uh, President Trump uh, railed against Section 230 and uh, was a strong proponent of rolling back those protections, of eliminating those protections. But the problem that I see is if the uh, protections are no longer there, there is no standard for what what a, a an online platform could or could not be held liable for. Anybody could make a case that they were uh, harmed or that uh, uh, that certain things that were posted uh, were dangerous in some context or whatever. It, it seems like the end result would be these platforms would dramatically restrict what you could and couldn't post uh, moving forward. Yeah, just a couple points here. It's not just President Trump who wants to hold uh, these social media platforms accountable, but even the Biden administration in this particular case, Mm. they argue that when you cross the line into recommending content, you leave behind the protections of Section 230. And so both the uh, Democrats and the Republicans are trying to get a handle on the so- social media stuff. Um, and, but, you know, to, to your point directly, the plaintiff would still have to prove the underlying tort, for example, that they claimed that was committed through the YouTube video or the tweet or whatever. Or in the case that's going to be arguing today, the government would still have to prove the underlying crime that was committed through the uh, social media post. So it's not just, it's not as dramatic as you seem to say. Well, but I, I'm wondering if uh, a, a platform, say if I run Facebook or Twitter or YouTube or whatever it might happen to be, uh, just being sued can uh, create a, a huge legal expense. And I, I, I'm just, I'm just wondering what kind of effect, I mean, certainly uh, if we're talking about, in the case that will be argued today, has to do with uh, uh, terrorist uh, activity, uh, terrorist groups recruiting uh, people on uh, social media, uh, recruiting radicals on, on social media, on Twitter. And certainly nobody wants to see that, but it, it can be, it, to just uh, throw this wide open, I wonder you know, what effect that might have on what kind of content... Uh, moderation there might be moving forward. Yeah, even Justice Kagan yesterday during oral argument said that every business has to factor in 
the risks of being sued when they sell a particular product Fair or enough. profit from a particular activity. And so this is no different. And so re- re- remember who owns these companies. Elon Musk, he's really rich. He owns Twitter. Mm-hmm. Uh, Mark Zuckerberg, he's really rich. He owns Facebook. And even he says that something has to be done. Yeah. And so Google's owned by really rich people also. I forgot who they are, you know, the major right. shareholders. but. Right. But, you know, if the New York Times can get sued and there are high standards of holding them liable or Ford Motor Company can get sued, why can't these social media companies that are among the most valuable in the world right. financially it be is. held accountable as well? It That's is, the argument. Yeah, it is a, a certainly a, a fair point. And again, the, uh, the case that will be argued today uh, has less to do with Section 230 and uh, uh, has more to do with uh, anti-terrorism laws, right? Right. So that's the Twitter case. And what the claim there is essentially that Twitter uh, uh, did not remove uh, terrorist uh, uh, tweets fast enough. They they do try to remove these things, mm-hmm. uh, but they didn't do it, quote, fast enough. And so they therefore aided and embedded terrorism under the Federal Anti-Terrorism Act. But um, uh, the, the government is, uh, would still have to prove intent, mm-hmm. which they're prosecuting for aiding and abetting. And even Justice Thomas, who before the case was the cases were argued starting yesterday and then again today, wanted to rein in this stuff. Even he seemed skeptical because he said, how, how do you prove intent? The Twitter intended to aid and abet terrorism when they want to remove, when they try to remove the material from their, uh, their platform as right. quickly as they can. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and so it would seem that this case that will be argued today is maybe not as strong as the, uh, as the case that was argued yesterday against YouTube. Um, well, what I th- what I think is going to happen if I had to predict, and this is what Justice Barrett signaled also yesterday, if if Twitter wins because the government can't prove intent to aid and abet mm-hmm. simply because Twitter didn't remove the tweets fast enough, right? Uh, then they don't even have to reach the larger immunity question under the Google case, and so they will. They'd rule for Twitter and then dismiss as improvidently granted hmm. the cert petition in the Google case and wait for a better case to try to define what the immunity provision in uh, the uh, Communications Decency Act Section 230 actually means because everyone knows they at some point they have to say what it means. Right, uh, and and that's where the ambigu- ambiguity of the fact that it is uh, basically one sentence uh, comes into play uh, as far as it, because it is uh, not very specific. Um, and, and part of this also goes back to just the massive volume of uh, information that is being posted on these uh, platforms on a uh, daily basis. How do you moderate it? How do you control it? How do you filter it to the users uh, in, in some sort of meaningful way? So really, uh, all of those tech questions have to be answered uh, as well. Absolutely. Um, and I use YouTube clips uh, almost in almost every class, two or three uh, minute YouTube clips to illustrate uh, a substantive point we're trying to make. So these things have value. But as I said at the outset, uh, social media platforms are much different than when the, cons- uh, 
when the uh, Communications Decency Act was enacted in 1996. Right. These things are worth billions and billions of dollars yeah. now. And so, as I said before, if Ford Motor Company or, you know, Costco or any other company can be liable for uh, uh, torts or crimes they commit, why shouldn't uh, Google and Twitter and Facebook uh, also be yeah. liable? It is a, a fair point that at the time Section 230 was written, nobody could have imagined uh, the... Uh, influence and uh, you know the growth of social media that we have seen uh, in the intervening years it was uh, basically uh, a question of companies that hosted websites uh, and and that was really but then that also brings up the the question that I don't think anyone has really talked about if you if you repeal section 230 how does that impact I mean every uh, every company, every business, every organization, every church has a website today. So do, do those hosting companies who host those websites, then do they have a responsibility to uh, you know, verify or, or determine whether uh, the, uh, you know, do they have a liability for the websites they host? And that could that... Uh, lead to an upheaval in the, you know, the web hosting uh, industry. Well, I, w- I would think they would, and again, they're making money on it, not as much as Google and Facebook and sure. Twitter are. But, but here's the point, and I actually teach a class uh, today called in, called Remedies. And so, you know, if, if a company doesn't want to be liable for something, you know, compensatory damages or today's lesson, punitive damages, don't mm-hmm. commit the tort. Right. Don't don't do the wrong thing. So it would just make these companies, these social media platforms, be more careful, be more careful. It, it would uh, it definitely would change uh, the uh, Internet has been has been uh, pointed out. This would alter the paradigm on how the Internet, as we know it today, operates remains to be seen, whether it be. Uh, fully a change for the better, and that's really, I guess, the the question at issue, and we'll find out depending on how these cases go. And Dr. Scott Gerber is with us, uh, Ohio Northern University Pettit School of Law and the uh, Brown University Political Theory Project. Dr. Gerber, thanks very much for uh, taking the time. We certainly appreciate it. You're welcome, Chris. We interrupt this program to bring you a broken news alert. A pair of teenagers in Oklahoma City uh, are now in a bit of hot water, and it all stems from a teenage romance. You know how difficult those can be, right? I mean, you know, here you have a young girl, young boy, they're in love, they just want to be together. And yet her grandmother did not approve of the relationship, and so they came up with a plan. They apparently tried to strangle and poison grandma. The 80-year-old victim was reportedly riding in a car uh, with her granddaughter and her granddaughter's boyfriend when the boyfriend put a rope around her neck. Fortunately, grandma was able to break free. The teens were later found and arrested by officers. One suspect's brother told local news reporters the teenagers were upset that the victim, the grandma, would not let the pair spend more time together. I can't imagine why. I can't, I can't. I can't imagine why in the world uh, she would have a problem with those two 
spending time together. They seem like such uh, fine, upstanding young <laughs> young people. <laughs> you kind of proved the point that Grandma was trying to make, you know? All right. Uh, elsewhere in the broken news, um, you know, how about this one? Thomas Maxwell. He's from uh, Florida. I'm not sure exactly. Clearwater. There it is. Clearwater, Florida. Thomas Maxwell doing pretty good for a die for a guy who was pronounced dead just a week ago. Uh, Thomas returned home from the hospital on Tuesday last week. He went to, into cardiac arrest, and paramedics who responded to the emergency declared that he had died. Uh, after they left, though, a deputy noticed that Mr. Maxwell was breathing <laughs> and called for the help. Hey, come back here. Medics confirmed that Maxwell was indeed still alive and he was taken to the hospital. Fortunately, uh, the error was caught in time and he's going to completely recover Mr. Maxwell's daughter told reporters if it wasn't for that deputy, her dad might have awakened in the morgue or suffered a slow and painful death. So, a very astute deputy. How would you like to, if you're one of those paramedics who declared the guy dead, how would you like to have to explain that to your boss? You know, that's... <clears throat> you didn't notice he was breathing? I mean, that should be pretty basic, I would think, for paramedics. You know what I mean? That should be lesson number one. Um, speaking of people who have some splaining to do, in Spain, two transportation department officials are now looking for new jobs after a huge mistake. The trains that they ordered for a new commuter line are too big to fit in the railway tunnels. <laughs> they, they placed this uh, order, huge order, uh, for these trains, and they are too big to fit in the railway uh, tunnels. Isaias uh, Taboas and Isabel Padro de Vera have both resigned over the blunder. Fortunately, the train manufacturer noticed the error before the $275 million fleet of commuter trains was completed and delivered old tunnels in northern Spain that date back to the 19th century are more narrow than modern tunnels, and apparently they didn't take that into account. Um, one resident of the area says, a monumentally botched job. The mistake will now result in a two-year delay of the delivery of the new fleet of trains. <laughs> Oops! <clears throat> Oops! Uh, a couple of other items... The broken news. Um, at uh, In Nashville, Tennessee, a man is behind bars after police say he used a butter knife to break into a dorm at Belmont University. Happened back in January, police say 64-year-old Alexander Baxter used the knife to break into a dorm room, stealing a victim's wallet and school ID. He was later found and arrested, and the butter knife in question was found. He is facing several charges, including felony burglary, and is in jail on a bond of $55,000. But I want to know, how bad is the security at Belmont University to use a butter knife to uh, jimmy the lock on the door? Butter knife. Yeah, that's scary. 
And finally, in the broken news this morning, a Virginia man is in trouble with the law after reportedly being caught on home security footage attempting to poison his neighbor's dogs. Um, Heather Dinsmore, the owner of the three dogs, said she was actually away from her home visiting family in New Jersey earlier this month when she checked her security camera and saw her next-door neighbor in her driveway. He had a plastic bag in his hand and started breaking something apart in the bag and then throwing stuff into the yard. None of the dog turned out to be poisoned meat. He was trying to lure the dogs. Um, fortunately, none of the dogs uh, ingested the any of the tainted meat. Officers with the Animal Welfare League of Alexandria responded to the home. The unidentified suspect... Uh, who allegedly tossed the meat, later turned himself in to authorities earlier this week in connection with the charges. The neighbor, uh, the the guilty party, the neighbor, uh, reportedly left a note of apology saying he was bothered by the loud barking all the time. (laughs) To which the homeowner responded, my dogs bark. They are dogs. (laughs) They are dogs. Well, that's one way to uh, solve the problem, I suppose. There you go. Uh, you know, here's the good thing. He's uh, probably going to jail where he won't have to worry about the dogs barking from now on. There you go. Problem solved. Uh, that is today's broken news report, an update on the odd and unusual side of the news. We now return you to your regularly scheduled programming. And yet another major brand just announced it's halting all social media advertising. The two most overused and abused words in advertising are truth and trust. They are the two most precious commodities for all brands, big and small. As an advertiser, you have to trust your partners to protect your brand's truth using the media consumer's trust. Radio, it's on. This message provided by WFIN. And now your daily download, the numbers behind the news, the statistics that shape our lives. According to a new survey of 1,000 Americans, 55% of adults prefer complete monogamy or having one committed romantic partner. 34%, though, describe their perfect relationship as being a little different. Adults under the age of 45 tend to be more open to non-monogamous relationships than their older counterparts. Women more likely to prefer complete monogamy than are men. But this was kind of interesting. When asked how many people are already experimenting with open relationships, 12% say that they have engaged in intimate activity with someone other than their primary partner with that partner's permission. I'm not sure if I buy that, but that's what they say. 68% of Americans, though, say they are still not okay with the idea of polygamy being legalized. I don't know what we make of all of that, but it's interesting data nonetheless. So it is community read time once again. The 2023 Community Read Selection is the book The Invisible Husband of Frick Island 
And joining us this morning, Sarah Clevidence from the Finley Hancock County Public Library. Uh, Community Read has been going on for, I don't know how many years now, such a terrific program. The idea to get everybody in the community to be reading and talking about the same book. Yes, this will actually be the 20th feature event for Community Read. So really, there's been, there's been 21 Community Reads, but, you know, COVID <laughs> made things a little weird. Yeah. We didn't get to have, So 20th feature event. It did. Yeah. Um, so why this book, uh, first of all, and, and I want you to give kind of a, a brief synopsis of it because it's really a, an interesting premise here. The, the plot is, it's very quirky, um, almost reminds me of, uh, the emperor has no clothes Oh, yeah, in, the same, yeah. Uh, in the same vein. Um, but explain why this book. Well, you know, we go through a really long process to select a community read book. We mm-hmm. gather ideas from from patrons, from staff, from journals, from what other communities do for community read. Uh, and then we you know, research the book, research the author, and narrow it down to a short list of three or four options, mm-hmm. you know, authors that are available in our price range, right. meet, check all of the boxes for us, mm-hmm. and we give those to a community committee. So it's 10 community members that will have uh, a couple months to read those selections, and then they'll come together and discuss all the options, and they pick their favorite, and that becomes the community read book. And a lot of times there is – well, first of all, talk a little bit about the the plot of the book. Sure. Uh, this book is one that I picked up just because I thought I would enjoy it just for fun. You know, yeah. some books I read because I think, oh, that'd be a great community read. Yeah. But this one just appealed to me because it seemed like a great story. Mm-hmm. You know, Piper uh, lives on Frick Island with her husband, Tom, who is a fisherman. And Tom goes out one day. There's a, a storm. He doesn't come back. So it's presumed that he's died at sea. Uh-huh. But Piper just keeps walking him to the dock every morning and meeting for their weekly dinner at the restaurant. And the whole community sort of rallies around her and just accepts that that's where she is in her grief. And so they play along and they'll say, hey, Tom, hey, Piper, as she's walking down to the dock in the morning. Yeah. Everyone just acts like Tom is still there. Mm -hmm. So there's this reporter who's sent to the island to cover the annual cakewalk. Uh, But when he gets there, he discovers that the real story is Piper and Tom. Yeah. And since the reporter desperately wants to be a famous podcaster, he decides that's his story. And and it, launches it would be. Podcast. I mean, if I were a reporter and I landed in this town and this was going on, I would certainly be curious. I mean, I think, you know, it, it does make for for an interesting uh, scenario, but it does kind of have an emperor has no clothes kind it, of it does. Uh, uh, theme to it or kind of a vibe to it. Yeah. Um, so with that in mind, again, we talk about, you know, why this book, there is usually in, in many of, of the selections – an underlying message. What is it here? There is. You know, what really struck us about this book was the sense of community, the way everybody just pulled together and, and was willing to give Piper what she needed in her mm-hmm. moment of grief. Um, but there's so much to talk about in this book. You know, there, there's grieving, there's, there's the cakewalk, there's uh, some environmental issues going on. Um, there's podcasting. So, you know, we're able yeah. to explore all of these different themes with programs mm-hmm. throughout the month. Yeah. So a lot of, uh, a lot of culturally significant, uh, mm-hmm. things, uh, that are explored in this, uh, as well. But the story just sounds really fascinating. I have not read the book, but I'm looking forward to it because, uh, this one really sounds fascinating. The, uh, the big 
uh, event, of course, will happen early uh, April. Yes. Uh, the the month of, of March is kind of set aside as Community Read Month, but uh, early April is when the whole thing culminates with a uh, visit from the author. April 6th at 730 at the Marathon Center for the Performing Arts. Tickets are on sale now for $10 at MCPA. Uh, it's a great opportunity to to hear from the author and have your book signed. <laughs> Terrific. And in the meantime, there are uh, some things going on that tie in to the themes of the book. Uh, so talk a little bit about some of the events that are coming up. Sure. We have a program on cakes, different kinds of cakes, of course. Because again, he's coming, the reporter he's, ends up in town because of the Cakewalk fundraiser. Absolutely. That the community is, is a big thing. And then that reporter launches a podcast. So we have podcasting for beginners uh, taught by a uh, professor from Owens Community College. Okay. Um, our Spice World recipe for the month will be hermit cookies. These are apparently cookies that can last a really long time. So sailors would make them to take with them. Oh, interesting. I've never experienced a cookie that lasts a really long time because at my house, that's not true. <laughs> Yeah, that's true. That's a good point. <laughs> uh, history of water quality issues in Lake Erie. Uh, uh, understanding grief. Uh, you know, Piper's grief is obviously a, a huge part of this story. Mm-hmm. And then we also have uh, programs for youth. You know, Community Read is for all ages, but obviously not all ages are going to read Invisible Husband at Frick Island. Right. So we have books selected uh, through a similar process for our youth read books. So. And, things for all ages there. And these, uh, those books kind of uh, follow a lot of the same themes. They do, yes. They'll use, they, our children's department will use those different themes to help them narrow down options for youth reads. So none of these books include all of the themes, right? but all of them uh, represent those in some way. Yeah. Uh, there are a number of book discussions that go on through the month of March uh, as well in conjunction with this. Absolutely. I, I don't know if you have uh, highlights of, uh, of some of those if folks want to participate. Sure. We have options uh, all throughout the month, March 8th, March 13th. We have one at 50 North uh, on March 16th. Uh, we have a, one on uh, Monday afternoon on Zoom on March 20th. Uh, and even April 5th, just the, the day before the author comes as well. It's terrific. You know, if you have your own book club that's reading this as well, we do have discussion questions posted on our website to help you with that. So uh, for independent book clubs mm-hmm. uh, that want to uh, participate in, in their own way, uh, those resources are available online. And, and the calendar of events, all the uh, info is on the website, right? Absolutely, finleylibrary.org. Now, again, uh, April 6th is the feature event with the author. Colleen Oakley is her name, and she is a very accomplished uh, young lady. She is, and she has a new book coming out soon as well. Oh, so. awesome. I mean, she's very, uh, a lot of awards, a lot mm-hmm. of recognition, so... Yeah, that should be a, a very interesting uh, event as well. And again, as you said, tickets are uh, on sale for that now. Uh, we've got a link up on our webpage for more information about this year's Community Read event throughout the month of March and into early April with the Finley Hancock County Public Library. Real quickly, anything else going in the month of March uh, to uh, highlight or make mention of? Well, you know, something I want to mention that's happening just next week, February 28th, okay. our virtual author talk in conjunction with MCPA okay. is Sadiqa Johnson, who was last year's Community Read author. Ah. So she'll be talking about her new book, House of E. Okay, so if you remember last year's Community Read, uh, new book out from that author. Absolutely. So, terrific stuff. Uh, we've got a link up again at goodmornings.net for all of the uh, pertinent details. Sarah Clevidence with uh, the Finley Hancock County Public Library with us this morning. Sarah, thanks very much for dropping by. We appreciate it. Thank you. And that will finish up our podcast for today. I want to thank all of our guests for joining us on the program this morning. And once again, a reminder, you can get more information about all of the topics that we talk about each and every day on the program at our webpage. Go to goodmornings.net. 
So until tomorrow morning, that is good mornings for this morning. Now that you've had a good morning, go on out and make it a good day. We'll catch you back here tomorrow.